Amen. Grab a Bible. Hey, we are in 2 Corinthians, and that's where we want to invite you to be with us. Grab one of your own Bible if you brought it. There's Bibles in front of you, in the chair in front of you. Grab it on an electronic device. One way or another, have the Bible in front of you. Same invitation in the overflow online, inviting you to have a copy of the Scriptures before you as we dive back into 2 Corinthians. I'm super excited to be back. It's been a few weeks, obviously, as we had Passion Week, and then we had our Israel trip in the midst of that. So we are back. On Sunday mornings, we are working verse by verse through 2 Corinthians, and so we're joining back into where we had left off, and I'm excited to see what God has in store for us, but I'm longing that God would meet us. And so we already have kind of said it that way, but I want to pray one more time. And just ask that God would give us ears to hear what he would say to us, that he would help you to understand what he is speaking to you in the midst of this morning. So I want to lead you in prayer, but I hope you would pray too. Just ask God to meet you and show you what he has for you this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I love that we get a chance to look into this and that you are a God who has spoken and you are a God who speaks. God, I thank you that your word is alive, that to us today you would still speak. Give us ears to hear it so that we hear you speaking to us. May your word be clear. May we understand. But much more than that, may we hear what you're saying to us individually. And that's going to be personal. That's going to be from you to us. And I know that you're the only one that can do that, but I'm asking you to. I'm longing for it in my life and every heart here. Speak to us. Show us what you have in store for us. We ask for help in that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Make your choices, and then your choices will make you. Yeah, that's one of those quotes that's been around for a while. In essence, you make your choices, and then your choices make you. It's been repeated by so many people. It's one of those quotes that's a little bit hard to even figure out who said it first. And so without even giving any attribution to it, I just want to tell you there's truth there. You make a choice, but when you make a choice, you end up on a road, and that road determines your life. That, that road becomes that. Your choices cause you to choose paths that you go down that in so many ways begin to define you. I don't know if that's as clear to you as it ought to be, but it is that way. So life becomes this series of choices, these roads that we choose, these paths we go down that weave together just the, the space of our life. I draw you to that as we begin this morning because that's really the background. We think about this right now, this idea of making choices. The roads that we'll walk down, that's actually part of what Paul is addressing in the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, we've talked about it a little bit in times past, so I don't want to rehash everything, but let me just try to say it quickly this way. Paul had planted the church in the city of Corinth. He had been the one that first brought the gospel to him. Incredible things had happened, but Paul was a missionary. That's what he did. He continued to take the gospel through the world, and something went astray. Uh, His relationship to the church in Corinth went off the rails. Uh, Some of it because of some situations that they were dealing with. Uh, They were dealing with sin and dealing with it poorly, and Paul had to confront them on that. They didn't receive it well at first, and it created its own weight of confusion that we've talked about in past. But on top of that, uh, he had told them that he was going to do some things, that he had planned to come see them again, and that had fallen through. 
It had not come through. And just this whole series of confusion where they don't understand what Paul is doing. They don't understand his choices. They don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. And so part of what he does in 2 Corinthians is try to explain. Explain a little bit what had gone in into all of that and how it had affected their relationship. And so we just want to very quickly, as we begin this morning, try to put that in its context of what we've seen so far and kind of follow the context because if you can feel even the way uh, the conversation flows, it might be helpful in where we're going to go this morning. Go back with me to chapter 1. If you got your Bible open there to 2 Corinthians, go back to chapter 1 and begin where Paul begins to explain himself in verse 15. He says, In this confidence, I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit. Like, I was planning to come. I really intended to come and see you, to pass by you on the way of Macedonia, and to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, When I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I planned, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Pause and just catch it. I mean, Paul had said he was coming. He had planned to go, and it fell through. And part of what began to happen because of the tense relationship they had, some of them began to accuse Paul of being flippant. Like, Like Paul makes promises he has no intention of keeping. Like he's not a man of his word. He's not one that you can trust. He told us he would come. He didn't come. And and Paul's like, hey, is that how I did that? Do you think that's how I live my life lightly, flippantly? And, And so he begins to try to answer that question. But right where he's about to answer it, he makes a digression, which is really fun because right there, he just goes straight into who God is. And there in chapter one, he just tells us in verse 18, but God is faithful. Our word to you was not yes and no. And he gives this great little digression that just says, hey, you know what? You can always trust God. Don't allow anything that's happening right now between you and I to cause you to doubt God's faithfulness. I want you to know he is an altogether trustworthy God. Well, after in that digression, he comes back to his explanation in verse 23. He says, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy. And for by your faith, we, you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Pausing there and just saying, Paul's saying, hey, I, you know, one of the things that made me make that choice was I really care about you. And, and, and the tense relationship they had, the way that it was going, it could have just, just made it worse. And he's like, hey, I, I chose not to come for your sake, because I love you. I care about where you are. I care about these things. I care about what's taking place. And so he explains a little bit the motive behind it. But again, right as he gets there, he makes another digression. And he begins to talk about forgiveness and talks about that space of really the issue of sin that they had been dealing with and that call to embrace God's forgiveness, both for them and for people in the midst of that. And if you've been with us in 2 Corinthians, that's really where we left off you know, just there in verse 11, where we're saying we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, and so we don't want to play into that. Well, now he comes back. So if you're kind of following him, he starts down this, like, explaining his, his choices, explains a little bit the heart behind it, and now he takes us again into it. And so pick it up there in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, 
a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Okay, so here he is. He begins to give us a little bit of the unpacking behind it. He tells us his choices and and why he he had left Troas and then began to go to Macedonia. So again, if you're trying to follow like Paul's travel log or his explanation, he then does another digression. In fact, Bible students sometimes call this the great digression uh, because he like gets right there and he's like, I left for Macedonia and then he leaves. He leaves this and we're not back until chapter 7. Uh, before he comes back to picking up the subject where he lets off. In fact, you might just want to see it. So again, if you're there in chapter 2, just notice that he's telling us there, uh, you know, as he's saying this in verse 13, he says, I departed for Macedonia. Now turn over to chapter 7, pick it up in verse 5. It says, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, so I left from Macedonia great digression. Now he's back into it. You know, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Catch that for a moment. Titus came, but it wasn't just that they saw Titus, but what Titus tells them. Not only by his coming, but also by his consolation, which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Okay, so we're watching this whole thing. He's now comforted in this. He finds himself in the midst of this. And so again, it's this funny little moment that you kind of just think, okay, Paul, stay on track. Like, you know, you start down a road and then you digress and rabbit trail off and then you come back. So much so that some Bible students actually wondered for a while if somebody had made a mistake in 2 Corinthians. You know, they, they imagined it in one sense that, you know, somebody was putting together the scrolls of 2 Corinthians and they were getting to the end of chapter 2 and grabbed the wrong scroll and like stuck it in there. I mean, I don't know if this ever happened to you. Like you're like typing an email or something like that and you cut and paste something and you paste it into the wrong space. You know, like, oh, that's this interrupted the flow of thought. Here's the thing. That's not what happened. But it feels that way. It almost is like you're, you start down a road of explaining yourself, Paul, and then boom, you're off, you know, into this great space before you come back. And so it's kind of in the midst of this explanation that we begin a little bit of this great digression that we're going to spend some time on over the next number of weeks in 2 Corinthians, but you should kind of feel it. If this is making sense, it should feel it in the midst of this place of trying to explain choices, trying to explain why he did what he did, when he did, that's now created some confusion. So let's just notice what he tells us in our verse here. So if you're there in chapter 7, go back to chapter 2 into the verses that we're covering this morning. And Paul just begins to explain some of the motives that made some of the choices that he was making. He says in verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit. Because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So a few things that just flow itself in there. For starters, there's passion. Paul Paul explains why he was in the city of Troas. He says, I was there to preach Christ's gospel, or some translations just say, for Christ's gospel. 
there's a sense that he says, hey, I'm there for one purpose. Like the overriding, you know, just joy of my life, purpose of my life is that I want to be a representative of Jesus Christ. That was certainly true of Paul. And it's certainly true of his ministry. And it's true of, of the way that he did life. And he says, okay, I was there for this purpose. Like the reason that I was there was for this place of representing Christ. Hey, it's a good space, by the way. And honestly, if we're thinking about choices that we make, many times it's our passions, the things that we put as our priorities in our life that help us make choices. So it was for him. Just quick explanation or quick application. Oh, to God, that your passions and choices would be some of those primary ones, that some of the things that would reign over the choices you make would be Christ, you know, living for Christ, representing Jesus, that that would be like, hey, this is one of the things that helps me make the choices in my life. So it was for Paul. On top of that, he had an opportunity. He says the Lord opened a door for him there. He was in the city of Troas. Not only is he wanting to represent Christ, but now opportunity is there given by God, which is so much richer, that God made a space that he could do exactly that, preach Christ, make Christ known in this city. So passion, opportunity, just forcing his choices or guiding him to some of the choices he was going to make, but he ends up leaving. He ends up leaving Troas, and he tells us why. He says in verse 13, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. Anxiety, if you want to think about it that way, worry. He's worried about Titus. Now, in our day and age, this is almost hard to imagine, but I want you to try to. In our connected age that you could make a cell phone call, that you could reach somebody through email, they had none of that. And Paul had sent Titus to the city of Corinth. He'd send him on a mission, uh, both to represent him, very likely taking one of the letters that Paul had written to them. And so he had expected that Titus would take that, represent him, and come back, and Titus is running late. Not in Paul's expectation. He hasn't made its way back, and, and things begin to happen in Paul. I mean, probably he was just even worried about Titus's life. I mean, probably one of those places like, okay, did he fall prey to bandits, you know? I mean, does he, you know, did someone catch him on the road? You know, where, where, you know, why isn't he here? Did something bad happen to Titus? Maybe that's there. Add to that, maybe it's not just about Titus. It's probably about the, the church as well. Because he had sent him to talk to the, the church in Corinth, and Titus isn't back. And that either means something bad has happened with Titus or something is bad happening with the church. And, and, and Paul's worried about it. Paul's worried about it. That's why he tells us in chapter 7, it wasn't just seeing Titus. It was getting the good news that Titus ends up bringing that brings him relief in the next space in, in, in his journey. But you just got to feel that that made one of his choices. In fact, it was such a choice that he ends up leaving the city of Troas, that he, that he makes a choice to leave. And you can just feel the departure words where he just says, you know, I took my leave of them, I departed. Those are words that just define choice, that define the reasons he did what he did. Now, as we process that, there's a way that you're meant to feel that. So let's come back to it and think about it this way. So Paul's explaining his choices, his motives, and one of the questions that almost should just be undergirded in this, that you should almost feel, and maybe you don't. I mean, maybe because I haven't done a great job unpacking it. Maybe you're not thinking it through in the same way. But the, almost the, the unanswered question that's laid before us is, did Paul make the right choice? 
Did he do the right thing in the choices that he made? Again, that's actually what some of the church in Corinth, they're like, hey, Paul, Paul is not making the right choices. He's doing the wrong things is what they're thinking. And so you're left here at this moment by finding yourself thinking, okay, did he do that? I mean, did he do the right thing? And it's left unanswered. But if I can ask it as simply as I can, what do you think? I mean, if you could sit down there and process this for a moment, I, you know, again, just in altogether honesty, do you think that Paul made the right choice? I mean, here's a couple things to think through. He had a passion, he had opportunity in Troas, and he left it. He left it. He, he walks away from an open door that God had opened to him. It, you know, that he walks away from something that God was doing in part because of anxiety, part because of fear. Was that a wrong choice? Was that a right choice? You know, was that a right space that was in there? That's kind of what you're supposed to be asking. Again, I'm trying to try to create that question within your heart, and let's take it a little bit further and maybe even personal. When we think about choices and choices we make, do we ever make all the right choices? Do you ever, as you choose in your life, make all the choices? Can I answer that question for you right now? Absolutely not. There is not one perfect person in this room. We serve the only perfect one, which is Christ, who always did the right thing and everything that he ever did, but that's not you. We make wrong choices. We make wrong choices in the midst of our life. We make choices that sometimes send us down a path that was not necessarily the right choice. In fact, if we were even to look backwards, you know, it's been said that hindsight is twenty twenty, but I can simply tell you, I doubt that's even true. I don't think that we could ever look back and rightly evaluate our past. Now, why are we thinking about this? Why is that process? Because that's what is happening to Paul. And it might sound unimportant. It might sound even inconsequential. But let me turn it around and say, okay, what if we put your life up on the screen? What if we said, okay, let's talk about your choices over the last weeks, months, and years. And we were going to say, okay, did you make the right choices? Like, why did you do what you did when you did it? Why did you choose to move where you moved, take the job that you took? Why did, what, what, what were the things that flowed into that? And, and I just want you to almost feel that place where somebody was asking you, like, why did you do that? And you're like, how do I explain how do I tell you what, what, what this is, and how do we even look at that? How do I begin to unpack my life and how I process it? And so Paul is doing that, and then he just stops. He stops right in the middle of the explanation. He stops right in the middle of the space without giving a defense, without trying to defend himself or saying he was right or admitting he's wrong. Instead, he goes on this great digression. Uh, this great digression that's going to last for chapters, and in many ways what he does is he takes us much more deep. He takes us behind the scenes into his heart that's going to help us understand how he views life, how he does life, how he does ministry. We're going to find ourselves here, in specifically in these chapters, in some of Paul's most um, personal, uh, just bringing us behind the scenes into his heart, helping us understand who he is and why he does what he does in ways that are meant to meet us. So we're not obviously covering all of that this morning, but we want to cover the first, you know, juncture. Like he leaves this place of kind of explain uh, why he did what he did, and he wants to give us one of the things that just goes behind the scenes into the way that he views life and if we say it this way, the way he views his choices and the way that choices flow out in his life. So go back and see it. Just for context, I'll start there again in verse 13. 
I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now, digression, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Wow. Okay, that's what we need to pause and think about. That's what he wants us to think through when he's thinking about his life and how that works. He says, I am always being led in triumph in Christ. So what is he saying? What does that mean for us? Well, triumph, it'd probably be helpful for you to understand we're not talking about an action. We're talking about something. It's a noun uh, in the Greek language. It's sometimes called a triumphal procession. It's not talking about something that describes like something that's happening, but we're talking about something. In fact, I like some translations. Maybe you have the, the ESV this morning. It would actually read it that way. It says, thanks be to God who always, God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Uh, the, the ESV does that, the uh, the LSB does that, uh, you know, so there's several translations that do that, but all of them, it's kind of present, that we're saying, okay, we're led in triumph, and triumph is something. It is something. In fact, it's a picture that's used a number of times in Scripture, so if you can wrap your mind around this with me this morning, it's going to unpack some things, or at least I hope it will. So what is it? What is a triumph? What is a Roman triumph? What is this thing, this thing that is called a triumphal possession? It was a very big deal in the Roman world in those days. It actually existed before Rome, by the way, so it had lived for centuries. It was something they understood. What did it look like? Well, let's just put it up this way, throw up a little whiteboard, as it were, and try to answer some quick questions. So a Roman triumph was for victorious generals. They were that place that for a general or a commander who had led Rome in in an incredible victory, there were several stipulations. It had to be a complete victory on foreign soil. So you actually had to win a, a, a war, a campaign in another nation in a way that that is now conquered and made a part of Rome and and their territory. It had to be a space uh, where that territory was therefore gained for Rome. It had to be a space that it was such a significant battle that at least 5,000 enemy troops were killed. So it had to be no minor skirmish. It had to be a major war as far as Rome was concerned. And if you were a commander, a general that led uh, the army, the Roman's army in that, then you were entitled to what was known as a triumph, as a Roman triumph, a celebration in your honor in the way that that would look like. So what was that? What was a Roman triumph? How did that actually, you know, just uh, just flow out? Now, there's really no way for me to do a great job with this. It's bigger. I mean, for a Roman citizen, it was so massive. I mean, it was such a big deal that for many citizens, they might only experience one in their lifetime. Uh, in, in their space, but it was so massive that when there was a triumph, everything stopped uh, in Rome. Everybody was about it. It's a parade. It's this long, massive celebration that, that honors that, that the general that was in the midst of it. It would begin with trumpets and, and people resounding and screaming and shouting. That The Roman Senate itself, just at the very beginning of the procession, calling all of Rome, hey, come. Come and see. Come and, come and see what we're celebrating. Come and see this one that's there. And so 
catching all of Rome's attention. Everybody would come out. Everybody would come to see what's in the midst of this. And following the beginning trumpets and the beginning kind of Senate announcing it, then the Roman general, the commander, would come riding in a golden chariot, like literally a chariot made of gold. I mean, so rich and splendor that it's hard to imagine. We have several accounts uh, through historical records of those, and many times it would be this beautiful chariot, and everything about it meant to just shine in glory. It would have white horses often leading those, uh, that, that thing in this place that it just was meant to shine as glorious. We actually have one by the way, uh, that it wasn't uh, horses, it was actually elephants uh, that, that led the, 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 the Roman general in, partly because of what he had conquered. But again, it just, it's this incredible moment that you were meant to say, wow, okay, this is the man who has led Rome uh, in this glorious conquering thing. This is the one that would do that. Following the, the commander who was there, the general, then you would begin to have uh, those who would just begin to just have incense and clouds of incense that would now roll the rest of the Roman procession, that would roll throughout it. There would be singing, there would be singers, uh, there would be celebratories, but it's almost as if you could imagine it. And again, as best as you can, try to picture it for a moment. You know, picture this glorious chariot, you know, gold and this general, and then this cloud that just is flowing out behind him, that covers everything else that's about to come. There's this glorious cloud that, that just smells good. It's sweet. It's this incense that's supposed to be over it because now everything else is now covered in that. So what would that be? Well, it would be a lot of things. It would begin by those who had fought with the general. So commanders and soldiers who are a key part of that victory, they would be the next ones to participate in this. They would get honor, and again saying, hey, you, you stood there, uh, key captains, key those who, who fought in this, and they would be honored. Sometimes even the family uh, of the general in that space, it would be a space of, hey, you guys had done well. And then the next thing that would come would be the riches. It would be all that they had gained. It would be literally, if whatever they could bring physically into this Roman triumph, they did. Um, so some of you might have read through, we have like an account of, of the, the, the triumph after the conquering of Pompeii. And it tells us that when they did this, there was literally 74 million pieces of, of silver that they just kind of carried along in, in the midst of this to say, look at the riches that Rome has gained uh, because of this. But it wouldn't just be money, it would be any other treasure, any other thing that was a part of that, that, that victory. Now, pausing there just for a moment, not only did you get the parade, not only did you get this, then you would actually have a triumph built for you. And so if you ever get a chance to go to Rome, you might see one. This is one that is called Titus's triumph. It's the one that Titus gets for conquering Jerusalem in 70 AD, fulfilling what Jesus said they would do. He said, you know, Rome was going to come and they were going to destroy Israel. They do. They wipe Israel off the map, ending in Masada. I was just there a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, in the, in the last standing uh, of Israel in those days, and they are destroyed. And, and so Titus leads this army, and so not only did he get his Roman triumph for this, but then they would take this, they would build this triumph, and on it they would write uh, honor to the, the, the general that led it. There would be an accounting of some of the battles, and then on the triumph, they would carve pictures that came from the parade itself. 
So the parade that was carried through and all the treasures that were carried through, they would actually carve some of them. And if you ever see this one, or now I'm going to show you pictures of it, you would go into Titus's and you would see some of the stuff they carried. One of them was the Jewish menorah. It was the menorah that was taken out of the temple. Uh, that when they destroy the temple, uh, they literally carry the, the seven-branch menorah that was uh, you know, found there, and now they carry it to Rome. And it's a part of this place of, look what we have done. Look what we have brought into Rome. Look at what we have now conquered. So again, whatever they could carry would be a part of it. That would be the spoils of war. Uh, if they couldn't carry it, they literally built models. I mean, it's a pretty crazy thing in some of the historical records, if you ever want to look into it, just what they would build. I mean, so they'd have wagons that pictured cities or whatever it was that was there to, to celebrate Rome has conquered this. And so just in this parade of celebration saying, hey, this is the spoils. This is what Rome has gained through this war. But then the last thing, the last thing that would be in this uh, Roman triumph would be the captive enemy soldiers who many times were led in chains, um, not always in chains, though some of the accounts they weren't, but either way, it was meant to be a humbling. It was meant to be a public kind of uh, display of you know, their defeat and, and, and their shame in many ways that they were defeated by Rome. In fact, so much so that most Roman triumphs ended at the Circus Maximus, and these soldiers, many of these ones, would then be either fed to the, to, to, to the lions or put into battle to kill, <clears throat> to kill each other. And so just a, a, an ugly scene in some ways, but for them, for the Romans, like, hey, look at what we've done. We are so victorious. We are so victorious, and all of this is defeated. Okay, so now you have a thumbnail sketch of what a Roman triumph is. Again, there's much more information. If you're really into it, hey, go for it. There's so much written uh, about how these things flow out. But you have a little bit of a thumbnail sketch, and now we have to ask a question. Why do we need to know this? Or maybe even differently, where are we in the Roman triumph? Because that's what he's picturing, right? So go back to verse 14. You see it. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So where are we in this Roman triumph? If we're part of this, if we're a part of uh, this you know, parade that is moving through there, which part are we? Now, before we try to answer that question, I just want to pause and be honest with you and ask you, hey, please think. I, I know that sounds like, oh, of course, you're here, but really, honestly, I just want you to think deeply because it's a little bit of a challenge to kind of get here, and I want to just tell you very good, very godly people answer this question differently. Very godly people will see the answer to the question that I'm asking you differently. And so I'm going to explain a little bit where I am, but at the same moment, I'm going to explain where others are. And if you end up at the end of this service thinking, Jim, I still disagree. I think I'm with the other people. Go for it. <laughs> Good, godly people will go there. But I want to give you reasons why I think, you know, why I see it the way I do it, but also help you to process it through. So where are we in this Roman triumph? What do we need to see? Well, we know a few things. For starters, we're not the commander. We're not the one in the golden chariot. That's Jesus. 
Undoubtedly, it's his triumph. It, it, we're led in triumph in Christ. So he's the one who is the, 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 the general. He's the conquering hero. He's the one that is in that. So that's, that's him. That's not us. I would add to it that I don't think we're the soldiers. I don't think we're those who are with him. Now, there are some good godly Bible students who say we are. That, it, that in this triumph, what we're being celebrated is our part that we play in building the kingdom of God. And, and I want to not diminish that because we do have parts that God is working into us. But I will also say this. The Bible's pretty clear. When it comes to glory, when it comes to honor, it's all Jesus. Where Paul would say, I have no other boast. I have no other boast but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not here to say, hey, look at what we have done. I mean, quite honestly, we're more a problem than a help many times. And so I just want to tell you, hey, I don't think that we're getting honor in this moment. I don't think that this is a celebration of our achievements that we walk through this. And I think that's pretty clear, though, again, some good Bible students find themselves there. And if you're there, hey, you can stay there. That said, if we're not the commander, we're not the soldiers, are we the captive enemy soldiers that are led in chains? Well, honestly, there's a bunch of really godly people that land here. And I just want to say, if you do, hey, you're great. That's, that's good. There are those who say, hey, we are those who have been conquered by Christ. We are those who ha have been brought you know, into this. And in many ways, we are those who out of that become that. In fact, some even see the idea that uh, we're on a march that is ultimately leading to our death. Uh, that we are suffering, that, that we go through suffering in this life. And so they would say, hey, there's, there's something even in seeing, you know, kind of this march that would be there. And again, it's not entirely not true. I mean, some of those things are true, but I struggle with it. I find myself thinking, well, that might be true, but it doesn't feel celebratory. It doesn't feel, and in, 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 in the context of trying to figure out choices and making choices and how we face choices, again, it leaves me scratching my head and thinking, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Again, I, we spend much more time on it. There are, there are great Bible students. In fact, there are, there are a number of people that have wrote their dissertation on this, literally. I mean, this is their whole life, you know, work in the midst of it, and some greatly disagree with me. And so, again, if you're there, uh, I just want to make sure you have place there, but I want to tell you it's wrong, and I want to tell you at least it shouldn't be forced. Why do I say that? Well, I don't know what translation of the Bible uh, you were using this morning. Uh, we probably know this, that you know, the Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New, wasn't written in English. It was translated into English. And uh, as we think about translations, that happens a lot of different ways. And so um, there's a number of translation methods. Again, this may be more information that you're wanting, but it's important for us just for a moment. Um, Many translations are what we call word-for-word -word equivalents. That means they take a Greek word or a Hebrew word, and then they try to give us the best English word that they can. Now, translations will differ on what they think is the right English word, and that's okay, but that's their intention. So this would be the King James Version, the New King James Version, uh, the New American Standard, the LSB, the, the Legacy Standard Bible. This would be the ESV. All of those are word-for-word -word equivalents, and if that is one of the translations you're using, great. That's, they're, they're doing their best. But then there's another uh, tack that takes itself into Bible translation that is sometimes called a dynamic equivalent. And so a dynamic equivalent doesn't try to give us a word for word, but a thought for thought. It tries to give us what they think it's saying. And so they, they sometimes will add words to it that aren't actually found in the text. And that 
can be problematic. So if you're using, say, the New Living Translation this morning or the NIV this morning, hey, again, I just want to tell you those are dynamic equivalents. I'm not coming out an entire attack against them. I read them sometimes. I like even the New Living Translation sometimes and just feeling uh, the weight that it flows. I will often look at it, but I also look at it as a little bit more of a commentary than a translation because I would always recognize, hey, they're adding stuff sometimes, and they exactly do. So, for example, if you read the New Living Translation of this verse, it said, he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. The NIV does the same thing, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So, just understanding it, that's how they think this verse is translated. They think that this verse is saying, hey, we're the, the, the soldiers who have been captured. And however you land on this, I just want to make sure it's clear, the word captive is not in the text. It's not in the original text. Um, so to put it there, it actually forces something that's wrong. So if you have that translation this morning, I'm not telling you you have to get rid of it, but if you have a pencil, <laughs> you might just want to cross out part of it. Just take out, he has made his captives, because it's not there. It should just read, you know, he continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Or in the NIV, just take out as captives. So that it says, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. That's what the text says. That's what it says. And I just want to tell you, I think it goes wrong to see it that way. In fact, let's go a little further. So the idea of the captives, the soldiers that are there, it was meant to be public shaming. It was meant to be a public dishonor for who they are. And I want to tell you, I know who's there. I know who's there in, 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 in Jesus' triumphal uh, just procession because it tells us in Colossians who's there. So flipping it over to Colossians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, against the, the, uh, the law and everything that's there, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So it's the same context. It's the same uh, thought. There's a, there's a triumph. It's Jesus' triumph. And as he's triumphing, you know who's the public spectacle? You know who is there? It is sin. It is Satan. It is the world. It is all those things that held itself up against him. And it's saying, hey, that's who is being publicly shamed. That is who, you know, in Jesus' cross, he says, you know, shame, like this is their defeat. This is their loss. This is their shame. I love that. I love that it's true. And I just want to say, that's not you. That's not you who's being publicly shamed. You're not the one that's being made a public spectacle in Christ's triumphant march. So let's go back to our list here and say, good people land there. If you want to land there, stay there. You can be wrong. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, good people see it differently than I do, but I'm just going to cross it out and say, hey, that's not true. So we still got to ask, where are we then? Maybe we are the spoils. Maybe we are a part of that that he has said, hey, that's what he has done. Now, if you have the amplified translation, again, it's not necessarily a word-for-word -word translation, but one that tries to bring out uh, much of the, in the Greek language, that's how it translates this verse. So the amplified translation would say, Christ always leads us in triumph as trophies of Christ's victory. That we are in this, and it's in a sense that we're behind him, and we're saying, 
He's, he's won us. Um, we, are, we are that which he has taken out of darkness and brought it into the light. Uh, we are now his treasure. Uh, we are now that which he has esteemed and, and he has brought. And we could spend a bunch of time on that. I just want to tell you that's true. That is entirely true. In fact, I like when it talks about when Jesus says, hey, I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades won't withstand it. It has the idea that he is penetrating into darkness and he is rescuing us out of that. And so in his triumph, it could be that we are part of saying he rescued us. I am what he is now brought to be part of his possession. Uh, I was a possession of, of the world, but now I'm possessed by him and I am now his spoil. I, I am now what he has brought. And that's a good answer. In fact, we would say there's truth to that. I like the way it gives it to us in Ephesians, where it says that we are raised up together and, and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the excellence of the riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Or said differently, we will forever be trophies of his grace. We will ever be that when you see us in heaven, it will be, he is a gracious God. We are there because his grace has brought us there. That we will always be that that shows that and we are meant to show that. I kind of like the way it gives it even in the book of Psalms. So Psalm 106 says, save us, O Lord, our God. Gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name and triumph in your praise. Like in your praise, you triumph, we find that there. So it's very, very possible to say, hey, we are the spoils. Now, that's a good understanding. And if we land there, that's probably good enough. But to be quite honest, that's not what the text is saying. We actually know who we are. We're actually the cloud. Uh, we're actually the aroma. Now, maybe it's coming off of this, this spoil, but it actually tells us in the text that's what we are, right? I mean, maybe you already saw it, but let's go back and see it. So there, chapter 2, verse 14, says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, maybe we're the spoils that does this, but one way or another, we are that that is this aroma. We are this that is this cloud of praise. So let's try to go back to it. And again, I don't know how good your imagination is, but I just want you to try to imagine it. I want you to see this Roman triumph that would go on sometimes for miles, that would last the good part uh, of a day in its celebration. And you'd watch the trumpets and the resounding, and you'd see the golden chariot just coming with the, the concrete, and then the cloud would begin. The cloud of, of, uh, of, of, of just incense that would flow out of him, and that cloud would roll over everything else, just saying, look at what he has done. Look at what he has done. And, and what Paul's saying is, that's us. We're this ones that are saying, he is amazing. Look what he has done for us. Look at what he has, look what he has accomplished. Look at what he is. And so we're meant to be that. We're meant to be this aroma of Christ. Well, that's going to begin us down a journey that we're going to talk about next time, that we'll talk about this aroma and, and what that looks like and how we are that. But let's come back to where we are and having this understanding, having a little bit of this understanding, again, maybe just by the way, in case you're wondering, like, hey, Jim, how would I have ever known that? You know, well, you could have just got it from the text. He triumphs. We're the aroma of his praise. Even if you didn't fully understand all the historical background, you still would have caught the reality. He's triumphing we're celebrating. You know, we're the ones that are that. So what does that mean for us? What does that do for us? And why does Paul say that here? Well, once more, you just need to feel it. People are questioning his motives. 
People are questioning his choices. His life is now being exposed, and he's trying to explain it. And somehow when he's explaining it, he just pauses, and he wants to begin to give us. This is not the only principle that undergirds his heart. We're going to see a bunch of them over these next few chapters, but this is one of them. That he says, okay, when I think about this, when I think about my life on display, when I think about my life under examination, when I think about my choices having to be evaluated, hey, did you do the right thing? Did you do the wrong thing? Here's what I know. Thanks be to God. He is always leading us in triumph in Christ. What would that mean for you if you believed that? Well, let me tell you a few things. It would mean this. As we think about it, we'd understand, hey, Jesus is triumphed. I mean, he is the one who's already won. He's the one who's the victor. It's why it's a celebration. It's why it can say it that way again in verse 14. Now, thanks be to God. You should feel this. It almost should be like, yes, Jesus is one. Jesus is one. This is not a present celebration. It's a celebration of he's already won. A a Roman triumph didn't come to a general who was in the midst of his campaign. It came to him after he won. And we are in a space that we're celebrating that Jesus has done that. If you were with us this last couple weeks, we thought through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we saw it there in, in John 19. It says, you know, after this, Jesus there dying on the cross for our sins, having paid all of it, knowing that all things were now accomplished, like he had done it, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. His one. It was done. Jesus won. I mean, in that moment, in that moment on the cross, paying the full price for our sin, the battle was fought and the battle was won. The, the victory that brings about our salvation fully accomplished in and only by Christ. So that part of what we're meant to feel in understanding this is that we're living in a place where The battle that we are facing, the life that we're doing, the choices that we're making are part of something that the victory's already been won. In a few moments, we're going to be done with our sermon this morning, and we're going to sing a song that we've sung a number of times. Uh, But I thought I would just kind of point out the lyrics to you, because in many ways, they celebrate what I'm trying to say to you. And maybe sometimes a song can just make it land for you better. But I I think about that song that we sing that just says, you've already won. And it says, there's a peace that outlasts darkness. There's hope that's in the blood, that's in Jesus dying on the cross and saying it's finished. He says, there's hope that's found there so that we could say, hey, I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. To view our life this way, to say, here's what I know. Here's what I know. He already won. No no matter what happens, no matter what happens in my life, he has already accomplished everything. So that the life I live is not lived pursuing or trying to accomplish victory. It's being lived out of victory. That we're not trying to to, to fight to win. We've already won in many ways. Or he has already won. That we're living a life now, but it's based in a reality that he's already done that. That would mean a number of things. But in one sense, I'll try to say it this way. 
and then try to explain it, though it may leave some questions that we don't have time to go into. But simply this, if you are in Christ, all roads lead to heaven. If you are in Christ, all roads lead to heaven. That's a weird way to say that. I understand that because sometimes that idea is used in an ungodly way. But let me just try to process it with you. If you're out of Christ this morning, if you do not know Jesus and you have not believed upon him and been born again, can I tell you something? All roads lead to hell. All roads lead to hell. You can be rich or you can be poor. You can be young, you can be old. You can be popular, you can be completely unpopular. You can be successful, you can be completely unsuccessful, but you're on a road right now that ends in hell. It doesn't matter how you, what, what else you do. There's going to be a lot of other things that determine things in the midst of it, but one thing is certain, you're on a road that leads to hell. There's no other way. So again, I just, I just say that and say this, if you don't know Jesus and don't have a relationship with him, you'd need to know him because nothing else is going to work. Hey, that's important. But if you know Jesus, I mean, like genuinely, let's just say genuinely, you are really a Christian, all your roads lead to heaven. All your choices. Here's the deal. I hope you make good choices. I hope in your life you are making good choices, but you're not going to make perfect choices. You're not. You're, you're, you're not. Some things, sometimes fear is going to get into it. Sometimes other things are going to get into it. And, and however that turns out in your life, here's what I know. I know what the, the end is for you. The end is, is heaven. The end is heaven because that is not determined by you. It's determined by him. Now, again, I just recognize that could raise a ton of questions. So let me just say this. We're not talking about somebody who abandons their faith because the Bible's clear. You walk away from Jesus, then you're not saved. But if you're really a Christian, hey, that's the end for you. It doesn't mean that you know, all your choices are going to be okay or you're going to have the, the ultimate life God could have. No, you could lose God's best for your life. You can miss things. Paul's going to talk about that in the next number of chapters. He's going to talk about dealing with sin. He's going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to talk about other things that kind of guide him in his choices, but that doesn't change this. The end is certain. The end is 100% certain for us so that we know where we're going. That for the Christian, really, life really is a win-win scenario. It really is. I like the way Paul would say it. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Sums up life in a really clear way. He says, if I live, then Jesus gets to use my life for his glory. I mean, I get a chance to shine Christ in this world. If I die, I get to go to heaven. It's kind of a win-win for me. Live or die, I win. Live or die, I'm with him. Live or die, I mean, there, there, I, there's not really a way that I lose in either scenario because, not because of me but because of Christ. Again, we're going to sing it in a few moments. And so again, just pointing out the words of the song, I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. No matter what comes my way, no matter what this happens in life, whether I even make some bad choices, I've already won. I, I, I know this. I'm going to overcome. I know how the story ends. I know where this, I, I know where this is going. And I'm going to be with him. That's an amazing reality. That's an amazing reality that he would invite us to believe, that he would invite us to say, okay, here's what I believe. I, I believe that's how it's happening. So I like to think in pictures. Some of you know that. So I I've been using this little graphic up on the screen, but it's only a partial graphic. But I hope you begin to already understand. I'm kind of trying to picture life like a series of choices, 
Like you make choices and those choices lead to other choices and sometimes it gets all confusing and so you have all these roads like going everywhere. Sometimes that's what life looks like. But if we could pan out, we would understand no matter what choices we make, in the end we win. Not because of us, but because Christ has died for us and he's saying, this is where we're going. I, I'm rescuing you. This is, no matter your life, no matter how it's lived, you know, again, if you're genuinely in Christ, if you're genuinely in him, and I'm not saying that makes one, you know, living it one way versus the other, that it can't, you can't miss God's best, you can't miss times of showing him glory, yet all that can happen. But it doesn't change the end. It doesn't change the end. It doesn't change that we're going to be with him. And, and that's an incredible reality. That's an incredible reality that would invite us to say, wow, I, when I think about my choices, when I think about that, that is never in doubt. I'm never worried that, hey, if I make the wrong choice, that somehow I'm going to, you know, blow this whole thing and, you know, mess. I, I know where this ends for me. Now, there's so much more we could say there. I need to leave that for time's sake because we just have one more thought to kind of tie into it. So this is future. This is future. This is where we're going, but it's not just future. It's present, that he always leads us in triumph. And so you feel that from the verse, right? Notice it there in verse 14. Now, thanks be to God who always, 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 all the time, every day, and everything that happens in our life, he is always leading us in triumph. What does that mean? Well, it could have the idea that no matter where we are, he's always leading us forward. There are some that kind of take it that way, and there's a good nugget there, so I'll just quickly toss it out. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, he is never going to give up on you. Philippians 1.6 is true. He who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it in Christ. It doesn't mean you don't lose things. It doesn't mean you can't lose God's best. You can you can find into a judgment like the children of Israel that they didn't get to go into the promised land, but then God stays with them for the next 40 years. And he will never leave you. And so wherever you are in life, there's always a space that God's saying, come this direction. I will lead you. I will take you forward. That's true. It's a good space to think through, and I just give it to you for that and hope, but it's a little bit more than that. Because it isn't just that he's leading us, but he's working it together for good always. No matter what's happening in our life, he is going to always be at work in that. Now, this draws us to that verse, right? Some of you are already thinking about it. Romans 8, 28, well-known verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Incredible truth only for Christians. Only for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's a good definition of a real Christian. It doesn't work for anybody in the world. It's not true for everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is for you. Everything works together for good. Doesn't mean everything's good. And if we can kind of put it into the context of what we're talking about this morning, doesn't mean you always make the right choices. Sometimes you make the wrong one. Sometimes some wrong things get into that and you, and you get on a road that's like, that was not the best road for you. But God is gonna work it. He's still gonna work it always for good. It doesn't mean it's always gonna be fun. Doesn't mean it's always gonna work out well for us in this life. In fact, the verses go on to say, hey, maybe we'll die Maybe we'll be tortured. Maybe we'll be, you know, maybe there'll be things that happen in our life for this. But here's the thing. It can't get us away from Christ. It, it can't rob us from him. What could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? Nothing. Like nothing. I, my, my, my eternity is secure in Christ. And it's more than just an eternal security. He's saying, 
hey, wherever you are, I will always be turning that for my glory. I will, I will be always turning this so that so the incense of my glory shines in and around you, not because of you, but because of him, not because of you, so that we would go on to say, as it says in the verses, we are more and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Like in everything that's there, we know that he wins, that he always does this. That's a good belief. That if you could look at your life and say, I know where this ends, and I know that God is always faithful to me. And there's never a space he's ever going to abandon me. He's going to keep me. He's going to turn it for good always in my life. It would be an incredible reality. Again, it's not the only reality in the choices we make, but it's a solid one. So if this lands for you, the simple idea is this, that you would live a life under God's grace and not under works. I could spend a lot more time on this. I don't have time, so let me just try to say it quickly. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably fall into that category that most people in our world fall into. That is, you're trying to earn access to God. You're trying to hope that your good works will outweigh your bad in the end. And so you might even be here in church this morning saying, hey, God, look at this, what I'm doing for you. <laughs> I came to church, you know, and I listened to Jim for a long time. You know, I mean, that just count for something, you know, in the midst of it. But I just want to tell you, that doesn't earn you anything. If that's how you're doing this, please hear me. That's not going to work for you. All of our righteousness, Isaiah is filthy, says, is filthy rags. So you don't actually have anything. If you're thinking that you're going to earn your way to heaven somehow, you are not. And you need to come to an end of yourself and recognize it's only Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. And it's only him who can pay the price for your sin and rescue you. And if that's not where you are, I plead with you this morning, be so rescued. Leaving you in God's hand, I want to talk to those of you who are followers of Jesus because it would be an amazing thing if every follower of Jesus believed this, but not everybody does. See, some of you are still living that way. I mean, even though you are saved by grace and Jesus paid it all, you still live your life as if you were earning God's favor. You still live your life, in some senses, afraid that, you know, one choice is going to mess you up, that one choice is going to, you know, somehow find you, you know, in the doghouse with God, and maybe you won't make it to the end kind of deal. You live with a, a fear factor that is, just hangs over you, and that's not how we're supposed to go. I like the way Ephesians tells us. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Like, you can, there's nothing you could add to this. There's no way that you could sit here and say, it's, it's of Christ, so it's all him. And if you believed that, it would rescue you. Hey, we're going to sing the song in just a moment, but one more time, just putting lyrics on the screen. I'm fighting a battle that he's already won. No matter what comes my way, I get to overcome. You're my savior, we'll sing in a moment. You're my defense. So there's now no more fear in life or death. There's no more space that we live under this atmosphere of I'm afraid to die, or I'm afraid that God's going to abandon me, or I'm afraid that there's, there's something that's there. I don't live there. I don't live there, not because of who I am, but because of what he has done. It's a space that would bring you into grace, into a place that's like, wow, you mean I can't mess that up? You, you, do you mean that if I'm really in Christ, 
I can't, I mean, I can lose things. I can lose rewards. I can lose opportunities. Yes, you can. But you can't lose you. You can't lose your salvation if you're really his. And believing that would radically change life for you. Again, I'm speaking to one person this morning, so one more moment on it, and then we'll end. For that person I'm talking to right now, you hear me, but you're scared of this. You're scared of it because you almost have this idea, oh, Jim, you don't understand. Take away the fear, and I'm not sure how I'll do. Like, I live my, I mean, the thing that made me come to church this morning was I was trying to earn God's favor. Like, I came today to try to, you know, get one more, you know, kind of brownie point, you know, and, and if you rob me of that, if you take that away, wouldn't that make my life wouldn't I just go crazy? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't grace turn me into, like, I no longer had to live that? No way. Real grace changes our life, and it turns it around. So they're no longer earning God's favor. We're living life in the joy of his favor. That we're no longer living thinking, hey, I have to earn it. Like, I, I somehow have to earn heaven. I somehow have to earn getting there. And it's like, no, I, I know how this ends. I know how this ends. And, and no matter what it is, I want to make good choices. I want to make good choices because I want to honor God. I want to serve him. I want rewards. But you know what? Even if I made some bad ones, even if, if fear made me make a choice that I shouldn't have made, and I, you know, he is still my king. And you know what? I mean, my, my, my eternity is secure. And, and that just, it looks at those areas of where we're making decisions and just puts them in a different light. It, it makes them a little less volatile, a little less scary, because sometimes if, you, if you're living your life under this place that your decisions at any moment puts everything in jeopardy, what a weight that is. What a scary weight, as if you thought you could mess everything up. Instead of coming and saying, here's what I know. Hey, I'm looking at trying to figure out my choices. Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? Hmm. Thanks be to God. He is always leading us in triumph in Christ Jesus. And, and no matter what I do, he is kind of, the aroma of his praise is flowing out of my life. That's the space that he is inviting you to live. So close your Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is. We need to end there. And I just invite you to that space of being in that place. So quick, quiet moment between you and the Lord, whatever that looks like. Maybe you're there. Maybe, you, maybe you're already there. If you don't know Jesus, this is a good moment to surrender. If you do, and that's not where you are, that you could look at this and say, I don't feel that. I don't feel this triumph in Christ, then ask him for it. If you're there, celebrate it with him. Be with Paul and says, thank you, God. Thank you for the triumph of Christ. Thank you that my life is in the train of his glory. May he draw you into that as we, as we just take a moment. You take a quick moment and pray. I'll do the same. And then we'll close in worship in just a moment.
God, I do pray for any right now that are living their life by their works, trying to earn your favor, trying to earn their way to heaven. They're failing. They will fail. God, rescue them. Bring them to Christ. Bring them to you, Jesus, who died to pay the only way that we could be saved. Bring these to you in your victory, Jesus. Please do that. Then I just want to pray for those who are here who are yours and yet grasping this incredible triumph of Christ is still distant, maybe even scary. Grace that, that would just change our lives, that we're not earning your favor, we never could have. And we can really live in this space where we recognize you have already won the battle. The outcome is not in doubt. The end is certain. To believe that even in the midst of our life, in the midst of these battles, it is transformative. Lord, teach us to do that. But right now, I just thank you, Jesus, that it is true, even for what we don't see. I thank you that you've already won. I thank you for the triumph of Christ. I thank you for the glory of what you have accomplished. And all eternity is going to put that on display. As, as you've defeated sin, Satan, the world, and put them into public spectacle, as you have rescued us out of darkness and into light, to you be the honor and praise and glory both now and forever. We pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have questions, if you need to, us to walk with you in that, we're here afterwards. Come up and talk to us. But right now, we want to invite you to worship. So why don't you stand? We're going to sing a final song and just long that God would meet us in that, which we've already been talking about, so longing that it meets you even now. In that, though, I want to just bless you in God's name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.